Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 131, September 18th to September 24th, 1863. Last week, we had the initial setup to the Battle of Chickamauga. Chattanooga has fallen. Rightly so, Rosecrans is going to decide to play off his two recent successes and drive home a victory against Bragg. Braxton Bragg is going to wish to turn the tables on Rosecrans. If we can say one thing about Braxton Bragg, and certainly a lot of folks say many different things about Bragg, it is that he does like to attack. Offensive actions defining the last two major engagements. Already having been stymied at Macklemore's Cove, Bragg will unroll a new plan to get his army in between his enemy and Chattanooga. If this happens, he will have successfully turned the tables on his pursuer. Let's jump back into the action on September 18th. Before we do that, though, we do need to talk a little bit about the Patreon. And we, as mentioned, we had some movie reviews here recently. We did Gettysburg. We did Glory, Ride with the Devil. So some pretty heavy hitters. If you want to hear a synopsis and historical analysis of those, that is on the Patreon. And we also are doing a memoir review coming up here. Uh, we're going to do somebody who served with uh, Custer and uh, his cavalry brigade during the war so we will have that posted as well here coming up in october i know uh, we're right around the corner here hard to believe to october so if that sounds like something that would interest you there's a couple other uh, memoirs that we have on here some pretty famous ones including sam watkins and company h and sam has participated in a lot of these major battles here in what we can consider the western theater the sub theater here so if that sounds like something to interest you just kind of reviewing those and going very briefly over some some major points of those memoirs, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. And of course, that all goes toward the general upkeep of the show, and it is uh, greatly appreciated. One thing to keep in mind is that Rosecrans is still trying to combine his forces. He's moving Thomas in an effort to try to get to Crittenton, with McCook trailing as well. Eventually, Thomas will move over Crittenton so that he will anchor the left flank, but for the time being, the one thing that the Federals need is time in order to have these successful movements. Let's talk a little bit about the battlefield before we really get into it, though. The famous quote about Chickamauga is that it is described as bushwhacking on a grand scale because of the predominantly wooded terrain. You will see when researching the battle that it is punctuated with small farm fields, and these are going to be key to understanding the geography. I will do my best to describe a map, though, with key features as well as a major road that's going to be key to the Union defense. Now, of course, we are going to be posting maps to the website, so definitely, especially for this battle, it's going to probably be better if you take a look at one of those but I'm going to do at least a decent job, I hope, of describing the battlefield here. So the, the major road that we need to talk about is the Lafayette Road, and that's going to be running relatively north to south uh, here in our battlefield map. And that road is going to be the one that's going to be heading back toward Chattanooga. So Rosecrans is going to really want to protect that. Now, Chickamauga Creek, I guess, is the other big 
Landmark, it's going to be snaking uh, relatively in a diagonal fashion. So as we can imagine, if we're looking at a clock, it's probably coming in a little bit to two o'clock and it's it's cutting down to seven sort of uh, relatively. There's a lot of twists and turns in the in the creek itself. Now, there are some major fords. We do need to talk about these. We mentioned these when we talked about Bragg and his battle plan, but we have uh, Reed's Ford or Reed's Bridge. Um, that's going to be closer to a place called Jay's Mill, and that is going to be sort of on the northern sector that we can call this of our battlefield. And then we have, as we continue down, Lambert's Ford, Alexander's Bridge. That's also going to be pretty important coming up here. We have Thedford's Ford a little bit further south, Dalton's Ford, and then as we snake all the way around, we have Lee and Gorder's Mills, and that's going to be, as we mentioned as well, an objective of the Confederates. Now, there are a bunch of roads that are kind of be coming off of the Lafayette Road. If we think about that kind of as the main highway, we got these other roadways, including uh, the Brotherton Road, which is going to be running uh, relatively east to west, west to east, here, moving toward Jay's Mill. We have some pretty key farms that are right off of that road, including the Brock Farm and uh, the Winfrey Farm, the Winfrey Field and the Brock Field, which we're going to be talking about here. Uh, there is another Winfrey uh, Farm Field. You know, we talk about these in other battles where there's oftentimes there's family members that are living next to each other. So sometimes they have the same name. So as if things weren't as confusing already. But we also have another Winfrey farm that's going to be on the Jay's Mill Road. That's going to be running relatively north to south, connecting Jay's Mill to the Alexander Bridge and the Alexander Farm subsequently as well. Um, so those are some pretty key uh, farms in our, what we can sort of consider the eastern portion of the battlefield. Uh, along the Lafayette Road, we do need to mention a couple of uh, farms here as well. We have the uh, Poe Field and Farm, the Kelly Field and Farm. These are going to just be kind of off to the side of the Lafayette Road. The Kelly Field and Farm is going to be on the eastern side. The Poe uh, Field and Farm is going to be on the western side, a little bit further south. We have the Brotherton uh, Field and Farm. That's going to be uh, right where the Brotherton Road is uh, intersecting with the Lafayette Road. So that's how that's uh, connecting there. Uh, we also have another uh, farm a little bit further south. That's going to be the Brock farm and uh, the vineyard farm uh, as well. Those are two of the southern farms and fields that are come into play here shortly. Uh, a little bit behind, we uh, mentioned, of course, the Brock and vineyard farms are right off of the Lafayette Road. So a little bit to the west is going to be the Whittle Glen farm. Uh, and that's going to be uh, important because that's where Rosecrans is going to be setting up there here, very close to Lee and Gorgeous Mills. Uh, now we also have Horseshoe Ridge, that's going to be coming into play. That's on the northern part of our battlefield. And uh, we have a Snodgrass farm and field that's going to be associated with Horseshoe Ridge. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, actually probably during part two of Chickamauga. Uh, and that's going to be next week. So hold that thought. And the very northern portion of our battlefield, we have the McDonald farm, which we're going to talk about as well. Uh, the McDonald farm is going to be uh, right off the Lafayette Road, but it's going to be relatively near where uh, the Reeds Bridge Road and again, that's where Reed's Bridge comes into play, connects to the Lafayette Road, and uh, that's also why Reed's Bridge is important. Um, so we kind of get a good idea, and hopefully you're looking at a picture, so maybe if I didn't do it quite so well here for you, uh, we get a good idea that if these, just running north to south in a very basic sense, if 
the Confederates are able to obtain the Brotherton Road, the Reeds Bridge Road, uh, force their way through the Alexander Bridge, then they're going to be able to swoop north and cut off this major, major thoroughfare, which is the Lafayette Road heading back to Chattanooga. So, as we mentioned, the Union Army needs time in order to set up a proper defense, and what better of a unit to try to buy some time than Wilder's Lightning Brigade and Menti's Saber Brigade. So two mounted uh, units, and both of them are going to be protecting the crossings along the creek, as we mentioned, Alexander's Bridge and Reed's Bridge, a little bit to the north. Both of these mounted units have been probing and realizing the massive rebel buildup. Minty would go to Crittenden with the intelligence that Longstreet was disembarking troops and would soon be ready to join the Army of Tennessee. If you recall, our list of general instructions for Bragg's plan of attack, Reed's Bridge and Alexander's Bridge are both key features to the battlefield. Wilder, though, will have his Spencer wielding troops at Alexander's Bridge, while Menti will be posted at Reed's Bridge further to the north. The 4th Michigan would be armed with Colt repeating carbines, so they are not without their rapid-fire capability. But obviously they are not near the firepower that Wilder can roll out. What is more, Menti has been picketing the various crossing points, so you have less than 1,000 men to deal with whatever the rebels throw down the road at him. Wilder does not have troops to his immediate front, so he will be able to add support if necessary. Remember that there had been problems with the overall cavalry chief Stanley falling ill and an emphasis on the right flank. So this is all there is to face off and delay the Confederates. It is an interesting comparison to the actions on the 18th with the actions on the first day at Gettysburg. Very similar, but we should point out that in relatively the same odds stacked against Minty, he has less troops than Buford to meet any threats. Much in the same kind of action as in Pennsylvania, the Confederates were essentially without cavalry. Nathan Bedford Forrest had been given the task of screening the movements of the infantry, but he does not really understand how to do that, not being a traditional military officer. Menti will make a stand with the 4th Michigan, 7th Pennsylvania, and 4th U.S. Cavalry on the western side of the creek at first. It was believed by Bragg that by late morning at least his men would be in the rear of the Union Army. Menti's brigade would become engaged starting around 11 a.m. with Bushrod Johnson's infantry. The Union troopers would do an excellent job in holding off the Confederates for a time while they withdrew back toward the bridge. They had clogged the road with their fire and forced the rebels to deploy into line of battle, which took some time. Now Forrest was on the scene, but would divert away from the action, thinking he was attacking the enemy camp. You could also sort of point to Forrest here and be like, well, why was it important to attack the enemy camp, as opposed to attacking the enemy themselves? So there is a lot of criticism on Forrest, especially during this battle and campaign. As his regiments moved over Reed's Bridge, they would remove the planking. Facing pressure, Menti will ask for reinforcements from Wilder. Wilder sent the better part of a regiment as well as artillery to support his comrade. In the meantime, Walker's reserves would pressure Alexander's Bridge, but the Lightning Brigade had pulled planks and made a lunette in the road. 
Little had sent Walthall's Mississippians into the fight, and these were good men to rely on, but they suffered heavy casualties, withering under Spencer and artillery fire from Lilly's battery, which was the largest in the Army of the Cumberland, and therefore okay despite giving up some guns. We have a description of this action from a member of Wilder's brigade. On the afternoon of the 18th, we were skirmishing out toward Ringold when we met Walker's Corps with Walthar's brigade in advance, a little more than 5,000 strong. Seeing that they were outnumbered, our brigade fell back to the Chickamauga River, crossing it at Alexander Bridge. Here we made a stand. Our regiment was a few hundred yards from the river close to the old Alexander house, some farmer by that name having formerly lived there, where we were supporting Lily's battery. We were west of the road, the 98th Illinois Regiment east of the road, while the rest of the brigade were down near the bridge, the floor of which they had torn up and used to make a defense. At 3 o'clock, the rebels came up and attacked us, both with artillery and small arms. Lily's battery replied, firing continuously into their ranks. Once I heard a rebel cannonball strike over to our right, and turning, we all tried to see what damage had been done. But from where we were, we could see nothing, but the report soon came that it had struck the adjutant, carrying away part of one of his legs. He was quickly taken to an ambulance in the rear. The firing was continuous till about four o'clock. In the meantime, Colonel Wilder had sent part of their brigade to the assistance of Colonel Menty, who was stationed at the Reed Bridge, about two miles further up Chickamauga River, and who had reported that he was being very hard-pressed at that point. Though weakened by this yet, we were able to hold the rebels back. At four o'clock, the report reached us that the rebels had forded the Chickamauga River, both above and below us, and were threatening our flanks. Thereupon, we mounted our horses and fell back three miles northwest of the Alexander Bridge, swinging around in front of the rebels, who had forded the river below us at Dalton Ford. Minty would eventually be forced to withdraw from his position as he was being flanked, at this point Bushrod Johnson having deployed all his men. Additionally, John Bell Hood had arrived on the battlefield and was moving his division into the fight, utilizing Fords. Wilder would also withdraw, as we just heard from the quote, but they would make a stand along with Menti late in the evening at Vineyard Field, protecting the Lafayette Road. They would do so with the help of infantry support, finally arriving in the form of a brigade under George Dick. From 11 to 5 p.m., the two mountain brigades had held down 17,000 Confederates and delayed further movement by Polk's command, truly a remarkable feat. On September 19th, we have the combining of the Federal forces. Thomas, as I said, will leapfrog over Crittenden, which was done on the night of the 18th and early morning. The Lafayette Road would be important to this, which is another reason why Menti and Wilder's action on the 18th is crucial. These maneuvers in the dark led to some bumbling, but no disasters. During the night, Dan McCook's brigade moved down along the Reedsbridge Road, though, crucially, and encountering the trailing end of Bushrod Johnson's command, having successfully crossed the creek at long last. The reserve brigade had been moved into action due to Menti's repeated calls for help. McCook would be convinced that this was a lone brigade, sending a portion of the command to burn the bridge, which they failed to do. Of the fighting McCooks, McCook would then wish to capture this lone brigade, but he received orders to withdraw. While moving back toward his superior, Gordon Granger, McCook would then tell Thomas of the opportunity, to which Thomas turned to his brigade under Croxton to get the job done and capture this supposed lone enemy unit. They would move out to flush out the rebels. 
In the meantime, Forrest had been dispatched by Bragg. Despite there being a huge delay, Bragg did still think his command had turned the Yankees. So now that we have reports of McCook operating on his flank and rear, that was going to be an issue. Croxton would be supported by Connell and Vanderveer's brigades as they move forward. Federals would run into the 10th Confederate Cavalry of Davidson's command in Pegram's division around 7.30 a.m. The cavalry under Forrest would wish to give battle, Davidson against Croxton and DeBrell's brigade against Vanderveer. Forrest might have been better off withdrawing and reporting to Bragg because his men would be outgunned and give ground. Rather than give up, Forrest would command Claudius Wilson and his Georgians, as well as Matthew Ector and his mostly Texas brigade to move forward. Wilson would move north through Winfrey Field and attack Croxton's line. Croxton was a capable commander and would refuse his line until help arrived. Reportedly, he would ask Thomas which brigade he was meant to capture in the growing engagement. If you remember, he was told there was only one, so that's kind of why that's funny. Also, it is interesting, sometimes you see these reports of these guys uh, who seem to have a good sense of humor, and maybe it's a little bit after the fact, perhaps, but they also seem to have a sense of humor in these high-pressure situations. Help would arrive eventually in the form of Scribner's division. Ector, meanwhile, will be faced with Connell's reinforcement to Vanderveer's line and the regular brigade of King. His men would suffer 50% casualties in the brief fight, Ector himself being wounded four times. Forrest had told the Texan that he would protect his flanks, which he did not do. Both sides would face some crucial early decisions. Bragg had not pressed the attack he had planned for Hood and Buckner further south. If he had attacked, instead of waiting for developments, he could have caught the Federals shifting. Cheatham's division would advance, and St. John Little's division would move toward Winfrey Field, but the rebel commander took a wait-and-see approach. Thomas, on the other hand, was urging an attack of his own, having brushed away the cavalry and infantry. If he had moved forward, it might not have been a terrible thing for the Army of the Cumberland. Little's division would advance with Govan's Arkansas regiments and Walthall's Mississippi boys. With Govan on the left and Walthall on the right, they would advance through Winfrey Field and pounce on Scribner's flank, the Federal officer not expecting to be attacked from that direction. Indeed, if you look at a map, it's going to be pretty easy, I think, at least to kind of see, realize that there is now a bulge in the Union line. If they were relatively north to south along the Lafayette Road, there is a good portion of them that are moving out into the west in kind of like a U-shape-ish uh, bulge, and thus they're being hit from the south, right? So they're not expecting the Confederates to come from that direction. Indeed, a surgeon would tell the colonel that the Confederates were on his flank and rear, and about to descend like a pack of wolves. This action speaks toward the confused nature of the fighting. The rebels would lay down in the field when facing volleys of the Yankees and the supporting artillery of Lieutenant Van Pelt's in the 4th Indiana. Van Pelt and several of his men would stand to the last, trying to stop the line of Gray and Butternut. Starkweather and his brigade is also caught up in the attack of Little. His men had performed valiantly in other battles, notably Perryville, but in the wrong place at the wrong time, it would scramble through the woods with a large amount of surrendered. King and his regulars likewise would be put to flight, with heavy casualties, 
again, mostly to capture. Another battery would fall to the attacking rebels in the process, this being described by a member of Walthall's brigade. Soon we had the order to forward skirmishers double-quick, through an open woods with only a low post-oak bushes about waist-high. Our objective point being a battery of eight guns in front of us. In our excitement and charge, we ran through part of a line of Federal infantry in front of the guns, and I thought our time then had about come, but they surrendered to us and we pushed onto the battery that was just beginning to pay out grape and canister on the brigade that was not more than 75 yards behind us. But J.S. Thompson, Bill Warford, Green Westbrook, and myself, I think between us, killed the last gunner at the battery when each of us bounced a stride of a gun and yelled our loudest. Then we turned the loaded guns on the Yankees and gave them their own grape. We could not then get the guns off the field, for all the horses were killed. All of our regiment had been well drilled in artillery, and at that time it came to good use. Every regiment capturing artillery in battle was entitled to the cross cannon and name of battle on the regimental flag, and that was a grand inducement to get men to charge batteries where it looked like instant death. In a short while, the enemy rallied and retook the battery from us, then we again took it from them and finally got the most of it off the field. Near this battery that evening, word was passed up our line as we were lying down that there was a Yankee sharpshooter in a certain fence, killing every man every time he shot, and if somebody didn't kill him, the line would have to move. I volunteered to try to get him and went some 40 steps in front of the skirmish line where there were some logs lying, asking the balance of my file of four to watch close for me. At first I could not see the man, but could see the smoke of his gun. But he soon exposed himself to ram his gun. That was my chance, and I fired at him about 125 yards, striking him under the left shoulder blade. He lay in the same place until the next Tuesday, when I was over the battlefield again. So we get a good account of, of the mad struggle for the battery, as well as some of the fighting that would probably have occurred in wooded terrain with sharpshooters. After the successful attack by the rebels, Vanderveer and his men would form up around Reedsbridge Road with Connell to finally pause the exhausted southern host. The 9th Ohio, made up of Germans, in fact so many that their orders and drill were in German, would get to the field ready for a fight. Having missed the earlier action guarding the supply wagons of the brigade, they would fix bayonets and jump into the Mississippi men without orders. This regiment numbered some 500 men, in 1863, so it was large comparatively for this stage of the war. The 9th would succeed in their quest to throw back a little. Croxon's brigade reformed and dealt with Govan, who tried to meet this threat to his left flank in vain. Little had suffered heavily, but was able to move his brigade back in decent order. Forrest would try to complete the mission of turning the Yankee flank with Debrell's Tennessee cavalry, but a quick-thinking Vanderveer who had kept his regiments from joining in the charge, would turn his men and swat away the rebel horsemen. At this point, the fighting in the northern portion of the field would draw to a close, with neither side having gained much at all. In fact, the captured Union batteries were recaptured in Little's retreat, although they were not quite done changing hands. Fighting would shift to the relative center. Later in the day, around 3.30pm, Little's division would have successfully reformed. They would try again at Winfrey Field, but be repulsed by August Villick and Philmon Baldwin. Willick, who during the fighting would employ his fire by advanced tactic, would hold firm. Baldwin would throw in reserve regiments to protect his exposed flank, and thus the badly defeated reserve division of the Confederates would withdraw. Rosecrans, in the meantime, had taken his headquarters at the Widow Glen House. 
while this was a little removed from the fighting, we can understand that with the heavily wooded terrain, this small dwelling on high ground gave him the most accurate view of the battle. Braxton Bragg, in contrast, had kept his headquarters at Leet's Tan Yard, which did not offer this advantage. From the perch of Rosecrans, he had dispatched Palmer and Johnson with their divisions to help Thomas. The Ohio commander trusted his Virginian subordinate in his decision to try to push the Confederates. This did leave only Wilder at Vineyard Field in the center, which could have been a real issue if Buckner's attack jumped off as planned. Cheatham's division would move forward and around noon become engaged. Jackson's brigade would meet first with Croxton around Winfrey Field, but Croxton's men were spent, having been engaged for some time. They would be replaced, though, by August Villix of Johnson's command, causing the mixed Confederate brigade to rejoin their mostly Tennessee counterparts. Johnson wanted to prove the doubters wrong after his collapse in the opening stages of Stones River. His men would engage Jackson, who was supported by Preston Smith. Palmer's men with Hazen, Cruft, and Groves would arrive in the vicinity of Brock Field, which was further down the Brotherton Road from the Winfrey Field. Hazen would have a young lieutenant named Ambrose Bierce in his command, the future author writing some good accounts of the war. Marcus Wright would form the left of Cheatham's line. Wright was not popular in the brigade formerly commanded by Daniel Donaldson because he was placed in command by Cheatham, bypassing a more senior officer. He thought he would be supported on his left, and like other commands in the confusing battlefield, would think friendlies were to his front, possibly from Little's division. A rude awakening would be had by his Tennessee troops. Strahl and Manny would have to replace Smith and Jackson, whose brigades were slugging out with their northern foe. We should mention that the Union Army had shifted their formations to include new tactics, written by Silas Casey. You remember, Casey from Seven Pines, of course. Well, these new rules would include that two brigades would advance supported by the third to the rear. The Confederates would still form a longer line of battle, so the front for Cheatham was wide enough. This did not mean it was going to help, though. His men numbered roughly 7,000, which meant two full Union divisions were a problem. Both sides would decide to shift their available forces away from Lee and Gordon's mills to their area of the battlefield that was seeing the most action. Horatio Van Cleese's division of Crittenden's Corps had been dispatched to assist John Palmer. A.P. Stewart was diverted on the Confederate side, Bragg giving him very vague orders. William Carnes commanded a battery under Wright's Tennessee Brigade. He had set up far to the left flank after finally doing so, and participated in trying to hold off Cruff and Groves, along with the 38th Tennessee. These men would then have to turn yet again and address the threat of Van Cleve, who was advancing with two of his three brigades under Samuel Beatty and George Dick. We have a description of the action from Dick's brigade. Scarce had our lines been formed when the sharp crack of the rifles along our front and the whistling of balls over our heads give us warning that the advance of the enemy has begun, and in an instant, the shots of the skirmishers were drowned by the shout that goes up from the charging calm as it starts down in the woods. Our men are ready. The 7th Indiana Battery, 6 guns, is on the right of my regiment. Battery M, 4th United States Artillery, is on our left. The gunners and every man of those batteries are at their post of duty. The tightly drawn lines in their faces show their purpose there to stand for duty or die. Officers pass the familiar command of caution along the line. Steady, men, steady. The shout of the charging foe comes rapidly on, now they burst out of the woods and onto the road. 
as if touched by an electric cord, so quick and so unison it was, the rifles leaped to the shoulders along the ridge where waves the stars and stripes. Now the enemy are in plain view along the road, covering our entire front. You can see them, as with cap visors drawn well over their eyes, the gun at their charge, with short, shrill shouts, they come, and we see the color of Longstreet's corps, flushed with victory, confronting us. Our men recognize the gallantry of their foe, and their pride is touched as well. All of this is but the work of an instant when, just as that long line of gray has crossed the road, quick and sharp rings out along our line the command, ready, fire. It seems to come to infantry artillery at the same instant, and out from the rifles of the men and the mouths of those cannons leap the death-dealing bullet and canister. Again and again, with almost lightning rapidity, they pour in their deadly, merciless fire out along the entire ridge until it become almost one continuous volley. Now that corps that had known little of defeat begins to waver. Their men had fallen thick and fast about them. Again and yet again the volleys are poured into them, and the artillery on our right and left have not ceased their deadly work. No troops can long withstand such fire. Their lines waver. Another volley, and they are broken, and now fall back in confusion. The charge was not long in the point of time, but was terrible in its results to the foe. Now, interestingly enough, he does mention in this account, and this is a captain under George Dick's command, he mentions how he is facing off against uh, Longstreet's command, and while not entirely false, I suppose, it could have happened. Uh, I haven't actually really seen where he would have met Hood's command, them being a little bit further south. Um, so if it was Hood that he was talking about. Now, Longstreet did command kind of this pseudo-wing corps, so maybe he's facing off against troops that would have been just Army of Tennessee, but uh, they're serving under Longstreet, so maybe that's where the confusion comes in here uh, as well. Carnes would stand briefly before being overwhelmed. Stewart's division would arrive with Clayton's Alabama Brigade leading the way. While commanding a large brigade at 1,400, most of them had not seen combat before. Not only would they take fire from the new arrivals of Van Cleve, but the reforming and reforced troops under Groves and Cruft. We have a description of the action around Clayton's brigade. A young staff officer of Wright's, Harris, met us with the statement that Wright's brigade was much cut up by an enfilade fire, that Carnes' battery had been lost and help was wanted. As quick as told, Clayton, forming Stewart's first line, was oblique to the left and vigorously rushed to the rescue. Did you ever note the thickness of raindrops in a tempest? Did you ever see the destruction of hailstones on growing cornfields? Did you ever witness driftwood in a squall? Such was the havoc upon Clayton. Four hundred of his little band were mowed down like grain before the reaper. It was his first baptism of fire, but he stayed there until out of ammunition. J.C. Brown then went in and was greeted like Clayton. The booming of the cannon, the thinning of the ranks, the thickness of dead men, the groaning of the dying, all were overcome to recapture the battery. Thirty-two of Carnes' horses had been shot down, and amid their writhings, the close quarters had set the woods on fire. The shot and shell were raging in the tempest, and Ramos threw by us, but Brown drove back the hordes and got Carnes' battery out of the cyclone. Another surging wave after a while brought him back upon the reef. Then Bate came into the arena with his crack brigade and prompt movement vied with his compeers in deeds of valor. He rescued the colors of the 51st Tennessee Regiment and captured several pieces of artillery. Tennessee and Georgia and Alabama tried themselves and from 2 o'clock till dark beat the battered walls of blue. 
buffeting the storm clouds, charge meeting charge with sanguine success until nothing could stand before them. Stuart here penetrated the enemy's center, threatened to cut off his army in two, drove Van Cleve beyond Lafayette Road to the Tan Yard and the Poe House, and carried dismay to Rosecrans to the Widow Glens. Later, Hood and Johnson on our left followed it up until, from the Breverton to the Poe Field, we pierced the line. Added to the horror of the galling fire, the generals and staffs encountered a number of yellow jackets' nests, and the kicking of the horses and their ungovernable actions came near breaking one of the lines. Blue jackets in front of us, yellow jackets upon us, and death missiles around us and about us. Oh, the fury of battle, the fierceness of the struggle over Karn's battery. From two o'clock until an hour after dark, it was war to the knife and a fight to the finish. So there you have a pretty colorful account of the action here in this part of the field. And uh, we also have all the way up until the closing of the first day here as well. So we'll get there shortly. By this time, Reynolds' division had arrived from Thomas's corps and would be divided up to relieve the men along the line. Hazen and his brigade would withdraw, eventually fully replaced by Turchin. Pre-war, schoolteacher Joseph Dodge would move forward from his reserve role, but crucially, did not realign with Palmer's, creating a gap. This was partly caused when Turchin was inserted for Hazen's men. Cheatham's division would withdraw, their men having to set up a new line with artillery to hold off the Federal advances. Rest and resupply would be necessary, the outnumbered division having suffered but staved disaster. Reynolds had set up a new defensive line at Breverton Field, with Van Cleve's division a little off the Lafayette Road. John Brown's brigade under Stuart advanced on this new line, but would have trouble against the Federals who outnumbered him. Edward King could have been inserted and rolled up Brown at this point, his brigade bouncing around to provide assistance where needed, but it was a missed opportunity for the Union. We do have a good account of the confused nature of the fighting from King's brigade. No one seemed to know where our position was. All was doubt and uncertainty. The ground was wooded, broken with low, transverse hills and irregular knolls. The woods were open, but grown here and there with baffling stretches of dense underbrush. There were a very few small fields and indistinct roads. The ground in our rear was elevated and our front slightly depressed. Palmer had taken position to the eastward of a road running north and south. He guessed it to be the Chattanooga Road, but he did not know. Suddenly, firing began away to our left. The men awoke and listened, comparing views in regard to it. It grew louder and came nearer. Turchin was hurried to the left of Palmer. Presently, our brigade commander, Colonel King, rode up and, in slow, deliberate tones, put the brigade in motion. We moved by the double quick around a low wooden knoll across an open field, faced to the right in advance in line of battle. The 101st Indiana were on our right in the front line. The wave of battle rolled down the line toward us. There seemed to be an interval at our right. We were moved by the flank to fill it. It was the worst possible region in which to maneuver an army, being without landmarks or regular slopes, and so thickly wooded that it was impossible to preserve any alignment. Besides, there seemed to be, as we know now, there was an utter lack of fixed and definitive plan and woeful ignorance of the field. Soldiers are quick to note such things, and one of the thousand, seeing a group of officers in consolation, said he guessed they were pitching pennies to decide which way the brigade should front. So there you go. We have good description of actually the confused nature of the fighting here and the terrain and how that was a problem and uh, pretty comical there at the end that they're sort of 
you could say flipping a coin to figure out which way uh, they need to be facing because you could be hitting the flank and that's been happening to a lot of these units so far in our story. At this point in the fighting, the action would shift south. John Bell Hood, commanding Longstreet's Corps, which included Bushrod Johnson's provisional brigade, was ready for action. His men would be looking toward Vineyard Field, where Jefferson C. Davis and his men had arrived. As I mentioned with the cavalry action, it is interesting how similar this battle is to Gettysburg in certain ways. Rosecrans, like Meade, is going to throw units in where necessary. Davis's division, which includes Carlin and Heggs brigades, would be given orders just to go toward the sound of the firing. So, very specific there. Floridians of Trigg's Confederate Brigade would skirmish across the field, but otherwise Davis believed he had formed up on Van Cleve. While moving around regiments in Carlin's command, Haig would jump off into the woods and engage Hood's entire command. Possibly it was because he just did not like Davis, Haig wishing for a transfer out from under him. His men would punch Johnson in the mouth, inflicting heavy casualties before artillery would be brought against them. Several times they would be forced to withdraw before re-engaging the enemy. Instead of responding by packing the most punch and brushing away Haig, however, Hood would jumble his attack, trying to potentially shift his divisions, although it is possible he did not give the orders. Because of this, things will become very confusing in an already confusing and hectic battle. I feel like some of you are saying, well, I don't know how this can be more confusing, so uh, bear with me. Part of this command under McNair and Robertson would hit the Federals at Vineyard Field. Gregg and Fulton, who had engaged Haig, would move north as would Law's division, although the latter was supposed to stick with Robertson. John Wilder and the majority of the Lightning Brigade would form up in a field along with Sidney Barnes. Barnes was trying to connect with Van Cleve, who was his division commander, although he was given the instructions to use his best judgment, which is probably not what you want to hear when you ask what you should do and where the enemy is. Probably, more so, the latter of that, so use your best judgment when you're trying to figure out where your enemy is. Barnes will advance in support of Haig, who finally starts to break around a log schoolhouse. Unfortunately, the Scandinavian colonel would be mortally wounded trying to rally his men. Robertson's Texans had smashed his brave command after sustained fighting, although Wilder's command would keep them from exploiting their gains. Trigg would hit Barnes in the flank, who advances in front of Carlin's command, although the rebel colonel is not able to follow this up, his regiments being ordered to support Robertson as they advance further north. McNair would meanwhile break free with two regiments, which was necessary to be mopped up by Wilder. These regiments would actually divert Charles Harker and his brigade of Ohio regiments as it attempted to form up and support Haig. They would track north along the Lafayette Road, unaware McNair's regiments were quickly swatted. Of Wood's division, George Buell is pushed back along with the other defenders of Vineyard Field. Buell would throw his regiments in to try to stop the oncoming Texans, first the 100th Illinois and the 26th Ohio, then the 13th Michigan and 58th Indiana. His actions actually caused Robertson to call in Trigg's regiments to shore up his line. Rock Benning and his still-depleted command from Gettysburg would be the only support for the Texas Brigade. They would advance across the Lafayette Road, but then experience the lightning of the Spencers, already having wreaked havoc on their commands. They would take shelter in a ditch on the far side of the road. Wilder would move artillery to inflate this position and inflict heavy casualties as a result. 
This was a move that caused so many casualties, in fact, that Wilder almost called it off. Binning's command, along with Robertson, will withdraw. At this point, Phil Sheridan arrived on the field and moved brigades under Bradley and Leibolt in a counterattack, but the Rebels would hold steady, both sides settling down around 6 p.m. When it was finally over, William Carlin would reportedly sit on his beloved horse who had been killed in the fighting and sob. Shifting back to the north, let us revisit the breaking off of Hood's command in connection with Stuart. Hood's plan for his attack was probably to fall on the potential flank of the Union line, but at this point the Federals have a rough L-shape, with Palmer and Johnson on the Brotherton Road and the rest of the line extending down the Lafayette Road. It should be pointed out that Hood has recently returned to the field following his wounding at Gettysburg, so soon in fact that he has not fully recovered, his arm in a sling. Now, some of Gregg's regiments and Fulton would roll up the Lafayette Road as part of their attack toward the Brotherton Farm. In doing so, they would hit Edward King and his command in the flank. King had given Brown problems and received Fulton in the same vigor until he was flanked, receiving Confederate artillery fire as well. Van Cleve's command was already dealing with Brown of Stewart's division and so would look on in horror as his brigades were also broken. Milton Robinson and in the rookie 75th Indiana would check Brown and his men. Reynolds started to put together a new line of defense, including many pieces of artillery. Lieutenant Harry Cushing had asked him for something his battery could do. This gives us a good idea of also the confused nature of the fighting as well, because artillery is not going to be conducive in particularly wooded terrain, so some of these batteries are sort of sitting around with nothing to do, twiddling their thumbs, but Reynolds is going to put Cushing to good use here, trying to form a new line. In the meantime, Law's Alabama Brigade, commanded by Colonel James Sheffield, would meet Cruft's and Turchin's regiments, but the Alabama troops would lose their cohesion fairly quickly in the woods. They had supposed they were following up Robertson, but were going on in an opposite direction. Stewart would turn to William Bate, his remaining brigade, and try to salvage the hard-fighting Brown and Clayton had been involved in. Bate would push on through the center, supported by Clayton's reformed brigade and remnants of other commands. Dick and Beatty would now break in earnest. Van Cleve would turn hysterical when begging Hazen for support, his men having been at Poe Field, recovering from their earlier action. Hazen's brigade would drop down and check the advancing Southerners, but a gap would form in the Federal line. Part of this was due to Groza's brigade running out of ammunition, but it was not without trying, a member of his brigade describing the action. General Reynolds was at the battery, and as Colonel Anderson moved our regiment to reoccupy its original position, he asked the colonel to remain and support it, but Anderson replied that his orders required him to report again to General Palmer, and we kept on. Reynolds said he feared he would lose the battery as it was entirely unsupported, and all his own regiments were in action. We just entered the woods on our way back to the first line when we saw our troops giving away, and one of Reynolds' aides just then galloping up to the colonel and begging him to come and save the battery. The regiment was about-faced and double-quicked back. Before we got fairly into position, the battery became engaged, and I saw the rebels advancing upon it in four columns. The men at the guns worked well, but fired somewhat too high. I watched the cannoneers and horses fall, picked off one by one by the unearing shots of rebel sharpshooters, and saw that as the regiments on our right were broken, there was nothing to prevent them from being flanked. The last round of shot was fired, and we heard the command, limber to the front, but still we lay there, determined to save those guns. 
The rebels had nearly surrounded us, but the battery, all except one piece, was safely retreating when we received the order to raise and fire. We did so and checked the charging enemy for a short time and then changed front to the rear on the 10th company and fired a volley in that direction. We were now flanked on both sides while the rebels were bearing down upon us in front. Things looked desperate and I began to think of Libby Prison. Reynolds, who still remained with us, had his horse shot from under him and at last ordered us to retreat double quick. As soon as we got out of this box, we reformed behind a rail fence, and soon after we were joined by the 9th Indiana, a splendid fighting regiment from our own division. Reynolds then ordered us forward, and forward we went in the fine style, assisted by the 9th Indiana. Our advance was short, however, for we no sooner cleared a little stretch of woodland than we were met by a most murderous fire from both flank and front, and were obliged to fall back in some confusion. Rallying, however, as best we could, we fell back slowly, firing at every step. As they peeled back, Palmer would refuse his line to keep it intact, but William Bate and his Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia troops would advance through this hole in the line. Hazen would realize that there were Confederates moving past his command at the edge of Brotherton Field. The competent commander would leave his brigade to meet the remnants of these supporting units and gallop to Poe Field, where he would set up a new line of artillery and a small amount of rallied infantry. There, they would engage Bate, whose command is cut up by canister from 20 pieces, including Cushing's. Bate, who is an ambitious man, has his horse shot from under him several times during the assault. We have a good description of Bate's attack. By 2 o'clock, our forces were exhausted except Stewart's division, numbering 3,800 men. We were formed in column by brigades as an assaulting column with Bates in front. Bates' command advanced to within about 150 yards of the enemy's battery and were ordered to lie down. In a few minutes afterwards, Clayton and his Alabama brigade rushed over us and engaged the Federals at the toe of the shoe, but the gallant Alabamians could not withstand the gallant fire of Palmer's veterans. So in about 30 minutes, Clayton and his command came back very badly used up and passed on to the rear. Bates was ordered to lie still, and in a few minutes, Clayton had gotten out of the way, and then that Grand Tennessee soldier, John C. Brown, who could always ride to the waves of battle as gracefully as the swan could the ripples of a lake, came with his Tennesseans, swept right over Bates' line, heading for the point of the toe, and in a few seconds, it seemed as if the earth had opened up all her magazines, and not a man would be left to tell the tale. There was roar after roar of musketry and artillery and rebel yells that could be heard for miles away. After a struggle of about half an hour, that gallant command had withdrawn. Passing back over Bates' line, Brown soon uncovered Bates' front. And this time, everything we had was exhausted except Bates, and the point had not been driven in. We had lain there and seen two of our best brigades go to pieces. But as soon as our front was clear, I heard someone coming from my left on horseback, and it was General Bates, riding his old single-footing sorrel. I was standing there Colonel Thomas Benton Smith, who commanded the 20th Tennessee Regiment, when General Bate rode hurriedly up to him and said, Now, Smith, now, I want you to sail on those fellows like you were a wildcat. At once, Smith gave the command, Attention, battalion, fixed bayonets, forward, double-quick, march. And the whole brigade moved as one man. In five minutes, all the horrors of war that a soldier ever witnessed were there. In 15 minutes, we were in the possession of every piece of artillery, had broken Palmer's line, and had driven him from the point and cut our way so far in the Federal rear that they began to close in behind us, and we had to fall back. As we did so, we met Brown and Clayton, who had rallied their men. Bates' brigade was also badly scattered. 
we rallied on Clayton and Brown and strained out our scattered lines. By this time, the Federals had brought up a fresh division under General Van Cleve of three brigades. With our already fenned ranks, we attacked Van Cleve, and in less than two hours was formed back before the deadly assaults of the Little Giant Division. We were so badly used that we were compelled to halt and straighten out our line. And by the time this was won, who should we find in our front but General Reynolds with his heavy division of four brigades to swallow up the remnant of Stuart's little division? But this was not to be done easily. Stuart attacked Reynolds after 5 o'clock that evening, and we fought until the night. When the fighting closed, we had driven back his right wing and his lines in bad shape. We held him there all night. As I understand, he fortified his lines that night and was driven out next day. I can't tell you anything about the battle after the first day, as I was almost mortally wounded in the right groin and left on the field all night. So Bates' command, having been rebuffed, would fall back by the way which they had come. Turchin's command briefly counterattacked and could probably have cut him off completely, but they withdrew back to their line on the Brotherton Road. Charles Harker's command would actually also move up the Lafayette Road, running into the troops facing Hazen. Harker was delighted to scatter regiments from three different commands. Gregg would be wounded in the neck by those men before escaping. Negley and Brandon's rally division would plug in the gap, stabilizing the line around 6 p.m. Now Law's command is essentially lost in the action, and some of the Confederate commands do not know the other is there, so again, this illustrates the confusing nature of the woods. Had there been more reserves, then perhaps Bragg could have truly exploited the center. There was one more action to play out on the 19th, and this is unique in that it was a large-scale night action, something we don't normally see. Sinjin Little was confident that there could be exploitation of the Federal line north of the Winfrey Field. While Baird's division, the reformed brigades under Shribner and Starkweather had extended Johnson's line north, fresh troops had arrived in the form of Patrick Claiborne's division. Claiborne had once commanded Little, and would listen to his former subordinate's plan of attack. Little would remark to the Irish general that a minute now would be worth hours on the morrow. While not jumping into action immediately, he would be ordered by Polk to attack, jumping off in the dark after 7 p.m. Not only was there minimal light, but Claiborne would have to advance through friendly troops, which was not an easy feat. Thomas had already decided that he needed to withdraw, so the attack, in some ways, was not really all that necessary. Lucius Polk and James Deschler's brigades would advance on both sides of Sam Wood's brigade in the center. Wood, who was questionable as brigade commander, would stumble as he moved forward. Artillery, which had followed Wood into Winfrey Field, would provide the necessary support to steady the line. As you can imagine, this action would be punctuated by friendly fire incidents on both sides. Facing Wood would be Philemon Baldwin's brigade. Baldwin would ride in front of his men, urging an ill-advised counterattack. For his troubles, Baldwin would then be struck down, but his brigade held. Polk would push Baird's division to the north. His command would finally capture Van Pelt's guns, still where they had been from hours earlier. To the south, Deschler had veered into the darkness, meaning it was out of the path of supporting brigades, Jackson and Preston Smith from Cheatham's command. We do have a good description of this attack from a member of his brigade. On arriving at the edge of the battle, we were quickly thrown into line in order to charge. The Texas yell was raised, and into the smoke of battle we dashed, passing through the lines of Confederates, who had been driven back by the enemy, and over the dead and wounded, lying thick on the ground. Just as dusk, we broke the Federal line and drove the enemy back in confusion. After reforming our lines and resting a short time, 
we were again ordered forward, the enemy giving way as we advanced. It was now quite dark, but just ahead of us was a brilliant light. A field was burning, and we were ordered to charge through it. A battery had been stationed in the field, and it was still there. It had been captured and recaptured and then abandoned. The firing of the guns had set fire to the highest sedge grass of the field. The fence was on fire, and the tall dead trees in the fields were blazing high in the air. Dead and wounded men were lying there in great danger of being consumed, and the Federals occupying the opposite side of the field were pouring a deadly shower of shot and shell through the smoke and flames. Bowing our heads and grasping our guns firmly, we plunged into this vortex of hell. On emerging from the fire and smoke, yelling like demons, we dashed at the Federals and soon had them flying. It was a fearful place. The heart-rending appeals of the wounded, some of whom were scorching, the hissing bullets and the screeching shells made it an experience never forgotten. Some of Deschler's shirkers had already run into their comrades from Cheatham's command. Smith, believing to be following up Deschler and encountering men in the dark, would ride directly into the 77th Pennsylvania, being mortally wounded as they fired upon him. We have another description of this action and the conclusion of the fighting. The fight is now ringing on our right. It now reaches our brigade, and until 9 o'clock in the night, we are in the midst of burning woods, dead and dying men, while shells, grape shot, and many balls are handing around profusely. At one time, the entire line of our skirmishers in front of Gillespie's regiment were captured. About this time, General Preston Smith, who was in the front of the right of our brigade, his brigade being on our right, in the darkness he got in front of our right, challenged some troops in front and demanded whose troops those are. Answer, the 77th Pennsylvania, and immediately fired a tremendous volley directing at our line, killing General Smith and two of his staff. Our brigade immediately charged the enemy and captured 250 and recaptured our skirmishers that were taken a few moments before. We also got their flag, which was a beautiful one. This last brush ended the contest for the night, and now at 10 o'clock all is quiet. We are in the front lines. So far, I have seen seven captured Yankee flags and about 1,000 prisoners. As to how the fight terminated on our left, at Lee and Gordon's Mill, we have no reliable information, but we are satisfied that Longstreet will attend to this part of the fight. Breckenridge and Cheatham having done nobly on the right, while old, reliable Hardy has given the enemy bringer in the center. One o'clock night, there is still considerable confusion about our lines, and some doubt as to the position of the enemy. As the fight was carried on so long in the night, our commanders are at a loss where to establish our lines. We maneuver all night, at 3 o'clock, we are allowed to make fires and take rest. And, as the morning, as well as all last night, is uncomfortably cold, and all our clothes are wet from waiting the Chickamauga late evening, the fire is thankfully received. We have literally walked on dead men all night, and now while campfires are casting their flickering rays over the battlefield, the scene looks horrible. Hundreds of ghastly corpses mangled and torn are scattered around us. I can sit here by my little glimmering light and count a score of Federals dead and dying. It is now nearly daylight, and I have not had a particle of sleep, nor do I want any while this bloody work is going on. So we have Smith's brigade jumping into action, capturing most of that regiment, and in the process driving back Dodge's brigade. Johnson and Baird withdraw to form a new line. Claiborne wisely decided not to pursue. The fighting had begun at Winfrey Field on the 19th, and so it would end in this sector as well. So with that, we're going to draw this episode to a close. I want to give this battle the proper coverage, so we're going to break it up into two parts. Part one, rightfully so, for this two-day 
call it a little bit more than two day, probably three day engagement here with the actions at Reed's and Alexander's Bridge. But we've done sort of this first stage of the fighting here on part one. And then part two will be next week. We're going to cover the final day of Chickamauga. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.